Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Proof that we are in the metaverse timeline because BBC has an article about a South African snake on a plane. Yes, folks, it has happened for (laughs) real. A deadly cobra in the cockpit forced (gasps) an emergency landing because of course it did. Right. It couldn't be anywhere else in the plane. It has to be in the cockpit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. And, you know, it started off just like any other flight for South African pilot Rudolf Erasmus. He initially thought the cold feeling on his back was his water bottle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Quote, I felt this cool sensation sort of crawling up my shirt, he said, thinking oh. he may not have closed the bottle properly and water might have been dripping down his shirt. But as I turned to the left and looked down, I saw the cobra receding its head backwards underneath the seat. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he then made an emergency landing on his flight from Blumfontein to Pretoria, the private plane, which is a Beechcraft Baron 58 for the aviation fans out there, was carrying four passengers as well as the snake. (laughs) And listen, the kind of cobra it was, a cape cobra, it is lethal. Mm. It can kill someone in about 30 minutes. So knowing this, Mr. Erasmus says he thought carefully before calmly telling those on board that there was an extra unwanted visitor. Quote, he was also so scared the snake might have gone to the back and cause mass panic. What a professional, right? Yeah, seriously. Right, well, throw the weight around in the back of the plane and uh, everybody's (laughs) going down. Exactly. So how did the passengers react? Well, Mr. Erasmus described a moment of absolute silence. Quote, you could hear a needle drop, and I think everyone froze for a moment or two. But the presence of the snake, although shocking, was not a total surprise because (laughs) two people who were working at the Worcester Flying Club where the plane first took off, they said they had earlier spotted a reptile taking refuge under the aircraft, and they tried to grab it, but were unsuccessful. And then Mr. Erasmus said he tried to find the snake before boarding the aircraft with the passengers, but, quote, unfortunately, it was not there. So we all then safely assumed that it must have crawled out (laughs) overnight or earlier that morning, which was on Sunday. (laughs) The best part? The slithering passenger is still missing. Oh, no. Wait. They didn't get in. They haven't found it. They said engineers stripped the plane. They have yet to find it. So but- did they just sell the plane afterwards if they couldn't find it? Yeah. At that point, that plane is done. Like, you can never, ever get on it again. Right. Can you imagine being the engineer that had to strip the plane? It's just like any panel, any <laughs> screw, there could be a snake right here. <laughs> One of my uh, favorite made-for-TV overdubs is from Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> Samuel says, I'm tired of these monkey-fighting snakes on this Monday-to-Friday plane. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Messy Nessie Chic, and uh, it is a shipwrecked sailor's guide to castaway depots. Oh. Mm. 
Also known as castaway huts, castaway depots were small shelters strategically placed on isolated islands by governments or maritime organizations and typically contained items such as food, water, medical supplies, and other essential items that could help stranded seafarers survive until escape or rescue. The idea was started by the New Zealand government in the 19th century when it erected several depots scattered across the Chatham, Kermadec, and the sub-Antarctic islands. One particular island, Disappointment Island, has been named <laughs> Wait, as such. It's really called Disappointment Island? Yes, literally. <laughs> and it's called Disappointment Island because of the such frequent occurrences of shipwrecks and its extreme lack of resources. <laughs> In addition to food and other necessities, the New Zealand government released various species of animals onto the islands to propagate and become an mm. ever-growing food source for the shipwreck survivors. That's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, and, and you all already know how this is going to turn out. We've covered enough articles like this <laughs> on this podcast. But um, pigs were the first animal released on the Auckland Islands in the 19th century, and they were followed by goats and sheep. There's also a record of rabbits being released on Enderby and Auckland Islands in 1840 and a decade later on Rose Island. Cattle were farmed briefly on Enderby Island and adapted to eating kelp and seaweed. Ooh. Ecological disasters ensued, particularly with animals with such voracious appetites as goats and rabbits. Mm. Yep. It is safe to say there once existed more native species of flora and fauna on those islands that were eaten into extinction before they could be officially discovered and given proper classification. But many of these small populations of animal species, such as the Auckland Island pig, retained rare genetic characteristics. Hmm. Due to their isolated genetics, some of these animals were used in research for diseases like diabetes. The earliest recorded shipwreck to these islands came before the introduction of castaway depots and was likely the very reason they were instituted. Oh. In 1864, the Grafton ship embarked on an expedition to Campbell Island in search of large tin deposits led by businessman Francois-Edouard Reynal, captained by Thomas Musgrave, sailing with a crew of five from Sydney Harbor. The survey for tin was a failure, and on their return voyage, the Grafton was struck by a gale and ran aground on a rocky beach of one of the Auckland Islands. Though their provisions were only enough for two months, the entire crew of the Grafton survived for 18 months by rationing and supplementing with seal meat, birds, and fish. They made temporary structures from spars and sails before later building more permanent cabins from the wreckage and local stone. They passed the first year making clothes from seal skin, carving a chess set and domino set, as well as providing reading classes. Oh. Ooh. Musgrave and Raynal assumed Raynal's business partner would send out a search vessel to investigate once their approximate return date had passed, but after one year with only a single ship sighting, a decision was made to construct a vessel that could carry them back to New Zealand. Using the tools they had salvaged from the wreck and a pair of blacksmith's bellows fashioned from scrap metal, they enlarged the original ship's dinghy by raising the gunwales and adding a false keel. And I gotta say, I'm just, you know, very impressed by these yeah. sailors who uh -huh. can survive, they can turn their boat into other stuff. Like, wow. Yeah. When they tested their creation, it was unfortunately too unstable to hold all the men, which meant that two men were left behind <gasps> until they could return to rescue them. Incredibly, four months after Grafton initially ran aground, another ship, the Invercald, had wrecked on the opposite end of the main island, and neither group of sailors knew of the <gasps> other's existence <laughs> until Captain Cross of the Flying Scud sailed back with Raynal and Musgrave to rescue the two remaining men. Wow. There were at least five notable shipwrecks that occurred on the Auckland Islands in which all or most of the crew was saved by provisions left in castaway depots. Yeah, I mean, my question would be, like, if you don't know that these castaway huts exist and you get shipwrecked and you find a hut with supplies but no person, 
that would make me incredibly paranoid. Yeah. Like, I would be afraid to steal the stuff. Maybe they're watching with a sniper yeah. rifle. You don't know your who's still there. Your desperation to survive is going to override your anxiety at that right, point. Right, right. pretty sure. Probably, yeah. <laughs> and the thing is that is smart about them is they're really designed to just look like a box. So they don't look like a livable home. They don't look like something that, you know, somebody mm-hmm. has really made into anything. Mm. And also, you're on a deserted mm. island, so... So you thought until you saw the hut. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there was a group of survivors on the other side of the island they never saw. Like, how do <laughs> and I'm I mean, wondering if they put a conch shell in there so they know whose turn it is to talk? Yeah, who's right. the leader? Right. <laughs> At any given time, a couple volleyballs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so the U.S. also built a series of castaway depot stations called the Houses of Refuge along the coast of Florida to shelter shipwrecked sailors. These houses were built by civilian contractors who were required to take their families to help with the duties and prevent the very real consequences of loneliness in such isolated locations. As part of their contract, the brave keepers, known as surfmen, were required to search the beach for shipwrecks and persons cast ashore immediately after storms. Mm. Their station house was equipped with cots and extra supplies to provide food and shelter for up to 20 castaways. Many of these stations were in service until 1915 and even later. Canada also had similar depots on small islands in British Columbia known as shelter sheds, stocked with maps, charts, and survival information in several languages. In World War II, the Luftwaffe developed rescue boys to provide shelter for pilots shot down or forced to make an emergency landing over water. The British had an equivalent called an air-sea rescue float, which was equipped with food, cooking facilities, signal flags, a radio, six bunks, clothing, water, and first aid. Okay, to be clear, those were rescue buoys? Yeah, buoys. Not rescue they are... boys? Because I saw this, like, boy band that was <laughs> right. in full sailor regalia, and oh. <laughs> it was fabulous. Wow. Yeah. No, this is in the middle of the ocean, so I don't <laughs> think they're there. But, like, literally, it is a giant buoy that you can just go inside of and the thing is tipsy-turvy in the uh, depiction the illustration because you know it's in the middle of the water right it's just a giant floating cabin yeah but yeah you're still alive so you're probably very grateful for that (laughs) yeah (laughs) if you fancy a visit to a castaway depot there is one refuge station called Gilbert's Bar House which is still standing (laughs) in St. Lucie Inlet near Stewart Florida it is now a museum open to visitors and offers various historical reenactments for your viewing pleasure year round. <laughs> they did not provide more Wait, details on that. What exactly? There's <laughs> an actor pretending to be starving and crawling towards it. <laughs> they have a ship that just wrecks repeatedly and then right. as it goes in reverse, it like puts itself back together. <laughs> Yeah, and if you fancy a Robinson Crusoe experience yourself, you can <gasps> skip the shipwreck and the hassle of keeping scurvy at bay at a hidden <laughs> eco-friendly, obviously, I guess, uh, <laughs> <Sure>. secluded beachfront <laughs> castaway resort property on the Croatian island of Hvar, with oh. spacious wooden huts, hammocks, and a snack bar included. <laughs> So that's about where the article ends. I don't know. It's pretty wild. Can you imagine just finding a hut when you're shipwrecked out in the middle of nowhere and you're like, thank God for wise government planning, which I never get to say in the right, day. Right. So, and at the same yeah. time, though, if you're one of those guys who's posted on those islands and like is checking the beach after every storm, like what's the fear that they're going to forget you're there? Yeah. Like it's it feels like a very difficult gamble to be abandoned yeah. on an island on purpose. Well, Mm -hmm. they do have their families, so at least there's that, but also... 
They're like the rabbits. They're going to completely take over the island, and the shipwrecked guys are going to be like, what? Like, no, this is a large community. We don't have space for you anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, this is a gated island community. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, this is from The Conversation. Supernatural beliefs have featured in every society throughout history. Research helps explain why. Ooh. So the researchers of the study were definitely not the first to venture into explanations of why religion. Both Nietzsche and a famous theologian, Henry Drummond, supported the, quote, God of the gaps hypothesis, Mm -hmm. meaning divine intervention by God is used to explain all the gaps in the current scientific knowledge. And what the researchers wanted to know was if religion helps fill the gaps in knowledge, what kind of gaps is it most likely to fill? So in total, they studied 114 different societies, ranging from hunter-gatherers in Africa to fishing and horticultural societies in the Pacific Islands to large complex societies with modern technology and written records. They were particularly interested in whether supernatural explanations focused on, quote, natural phenomena such as disease, natural disasters, or drought, or whether they focused on human-caused social phenomena such as wars, murder, theft, or just being a weirdo. What the results showed was actually a striking gap. Supernatural explanations for natural phenomena were more prevalent than the social phenomena. But the findings particularly surprising because currently major religions such as Christianity and Islam are very social institutions. Hmm. I think Cain and Abel to explain Mm. murder Mm -hmm. or the book of Joshua to explain war, right? And what they found was that societies developed more supernatural explanations for social phenomenon as they got bigger and more complex. Hmm. They're not sure why, but they think it's because people know and trust each other less in large societies, which then translates to beliefs in like witchcraft or Mm -hmm. sorcery. It would be nice if religion actually provided a good moral compass for all. But I think we all know that interpretation is relative, right? So <laughs> right. For, for some, absolutely it does. It's beautiful, but it's all how we interpret mm-hmm. it. And also what I found odd about the study is not once did they mention ancient aliens. As well. <laughs> so I don't know how legitimate the study is. I, how could uh, it be? Without, yeah. yeah, without a mention to ancient aliens. Uh, I could go on for hours and hours, but we'll just leave it here. Right. This is kind of the article. <laughs> So next link. Next link. All right. Any of y'all still play with Lego? Yes. I will admit I was never really that into them as a kid, but I have very much enjoyed watching the new Lego Masters competition show with Will Arnett. Have y'all seen it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Aside from the beautiful sculptures, it's very wholesome, right? You know, the contestants Mm -hmm. are very much like, I did come here to make friends. Mm -hmm. But... As someone who is not especially versed in Lego history and trivia, I personally learned a lot from this next article, which is actually a video from Phil Edwards on YouTube called Why Lego Won. And it's addressing what is apparently a known semi-scandal out there that Lego may or may not have stolen their original design. (gasps) Yeah. So we start back in the 1930s in England, where a man named Hillary Page founded a toy company called Kitty Craft. Originally, they were just importing wooden toys from Russia, but Page was dissatisfied with wood as a material and really wanted to go in the direction of this newfangled thing called plastic, which he considered to be both safer and more hygienic than wood. So in 1936, he introduced a new line of Kittycraft sensible toys, 
including the self-locking building brick for which he received a patent in 1947. Hmm. And if you watch the video and take a look at one of these things, it is absolutely recognizable as a Lego brick. It's got the studs on top, the hollow bottom, the right proportions, and they came in multicolored sets with instructions for different things you could make out of them, including not just buildings, but people, giraffes, all the creative things you might think of building with Lego today. So Kitty Craft and their bricks definitely existed. But here's where things get a little dicey. And by the way, a lot of what I'm about to tell you, I actually went and dug up on Wikipedia because the video at this point swings very pro-Lego to the point that I felt like they were deliberately skimming over some pretty important stuff and was like, "Mm, what aren't you telling me? (laughs) So there are two versions of the story. One comes from the official Lego website, which acknowledges Kitty Craft as the original inspiration for their bricks but says that the company contacted Page in the late 1950s to ask if he would mind if Lego made a similar product, and they say he said, sure, no problem. (laughs) Kittycraft stands, on the other hand, say that Lego was given the design on the sly by a third party who built (gasps) Kittycraft's first injection molding machine, and that Lego got a literal copy of the exact same machine. That feels more likely. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. They say that Lego started selling their version immediately in Denmark and that Paige was totally unaware that the Lego toy company was making a knockoff of his product until Lego arrived in the UK in 1959. Which does match up with Lego's version of the story, but it's like, you didn't just suddenly pop into the UK, you were selling this for decades in your country, and they don't really want to talk about that part. Regardless, though, of where the truth lies in all that, what we do know for sure is that there was a settlement in 1981 in which Lego paid Kittycraft £45,000, or roughly $200,000 today, to acquire all, quote, remaining rights to the concept. And one of the complicating factors in this, and we have to assume, I think, part of the reason that Kittycraft got such a relatively small amount of money, considering, is that by 1959, Lego had significantly improved on the design to the point that they had acquired their own patent that is distinct from the Kittycraft blocks. Specifically, they had added the interior structure, meaning those little tube shapes you can see on the underside. Kittycraft's bricks, and again, it should be pointed out, the original Lego bricks, were completely hollow. And because of this, they didn't stick together nearly as well. They were also prone to warping over time. So this video is obviously contending that these structural improvements made all the difference and that without them, Lego never would have become the juggernaut that it is today, so they should be allowed to take credit for that. The video also spends a fair amount of time talking about Lego's marketing strategy, which took things in a unique direction as well, because Lego used to be a general toy company. And it wasn't until Gottfried Kirk Christensen took over in 1957 that he ditched everything else and made the bricks their sole product. He said, these aren't automatic binding bricks made by Lego. These are the Lego system. And we're not going to sell you one kit to use your imagination on. We're going to sell different kits with exactly the right bricks to build one thing while still pushing the idea that you could use your imagination because all these kits you buy will work together. And the whole time he was doing this, Kittycraft was still just selling their one inferior brick kit while trying to maintain all these other product lines for toddlers and get into dollhouse miniatures, and they ultimately went bankrupt because of it. So I do think it's certainly fair to say that Lego did a better job of it than Kittycraft did or ever would have, but it's also pretty undeniable that for the first couple of decades at least, Lego was 100% using a stolen design. And then there was that competitor also, the Clicky Toys, Cookies... I don't know. Remember those? They were almost Lego. They were very close to Lego, Mm -hmm. made by a competitor. 
I remember getting a bunch of those and they didn't match. Oh. Yeah. So you would try to use them. I mean, you know, first world problems. But Right. Um, but as a child yeah. to encounter that. Oof. Well, and they still have a lot of competitors today on a much smaller scale, obviously. Well, literally, to a certain degree, they have mini bricks, which I happen to know you can get knockoffs from China. <laughs> and they all fit with each other. And they're great little prizes for children if you happen to need that. But but yeah, the, the concept of interlocking bricks you have to have some sort of different interior that makes them grippy to each other. But that is what the patent is. Other than that, you can make interlocking brick products and not be stepping on Lego's toes. Of course, they're a little bit like Disney. They have a lot of money. Maybe they decide what is stepping mm-hmm. on their toes. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Good news, everyone. And this is from Popular Mechanics. So take that as you will. (laughs) They're saying that ancient mummies from Mexico might be infecting humans. (gasps) Oh, that doesn't sound supernatural at all. That just sounds horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's archaeologists who are actually sounding the alarm. So it really focuses on a particular group of mummies in Mexico. You might want to just take a pass on if you get invited or interested to see them look at them online you know make it safe because they're still on display in mexico city and not everyone thinks it's done safely so mexico's national institute of anthropology and history says the appearance of fungal growth on the traveling display is causing concerns about the way the mummies are handled and presented to the public wow so they're called the mummies of Guanajuato. The exhibit made an appearance in the United States in 2009, which, uh, yeah, that timeline checks out. Mm -hmm. Right. But it was a recent exhibit in Mexico City where they were showing off six mummies in glass cases that has led the Institute to alert the public, especially considering that they don't know how airtight those glass display cases really are. (laughs) Quote, it is even more worrisome that they are still being exhibited without the safeguards for the public against biohazards, the Institute said in a statement. From some of the published photos, at least one of the corpses on display, which was inspected by the Institute in November 2021, shows signs of a proliferation of possible fungus colonies. So, you know, we've got some cautionary language in here, might and according to, and like, here's what we're seeing, but who boy. Okay, so deadly fungal infections from mummies, it's not a common thing, but it's also not entirely unheard of. Um, IFL Science reports that 10 of the 12 scientists who were present at the 1970 opening of King Casimir IV's tomb in Poland died within weeks <gasps> of the event, likely from fungi. And oh, wow. Yeah, wow. that's not the only example on record. The current Mexican mummy spectacle was never intended as an example in mummification. Experts are believing that the 19th or 20th century corpses, which are, you know, pretty recent, were unintentionally mummified, a possible byproduct of the mineral-rich environment, an airtight, dry, underground burial vault. Some of the mummies still have hair, skin, even preserved clothing, but Mm. there's an obvious lack of embalming or other common mummification products. So we're calling them mummies, but preserved bodies might be more along the lines compared Mm. to like the Egyptian mummy that you're thinking of here. Petrified with mushrooms is what they've been. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Like, and I don't want to, you know, reduce the cultural significance because they have been a part of Mexican culture since the 1860s. 
basically, when the families of the deceased could not continue paying burial fees, the bodies were basically set to be disinterred. And workers who had been planning to remove dusty bones were instead met with fully intact bodies, which were then put on display due to their preserved nature and the ability to attract paying customers to view them. Some of the bodies were positioned with arms folded across chests mm. and jaws in an open position to create the appearance that mummies were screaming. Basically, how they have been treating these bodies, it has long drawn social criticism. According to diagnostic imaging professor Gerald Conlog, quote, these are just regular people who are repositories of information about the period they lived in. They walked these streets. They went to the old market. They shouldn't be a freak show. But now the social criticisms have some health concerns. So hopefully we'll hear more about that soon. But if anything terrible happens, you know what to blame. Yeah, I mean, this is basically a perfect example of Bradley's article of like, the curse of the mummy. Well, yeah, exactly. if you go into the tomb and breathe in a bunch of fungal spores and you yeah. die, that absolutely looks like God is punishing you for em emptying the tomb. But also, please don't release a plague. Like, I've watched The Last of Us. I don't need this in my life right now. <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. So I'm staying on theme. This article comes to us from vice.com. It's titled, I study corpses in body farms for a living. Oh. I didn't know how we were going to stay with the theme, but uh, that delivered. Definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is structured as a interview with forensic archaeologist Haley Mickelberg. Mickelberg studies flesh decomposition, bacterial growth, and how bones move around inside a grave and more. Although she's worked on non-simulated graves, she now specializes in researching simulated mass graves, also called body farms. The graves made up of bodies voluntarily donated to science are later dug up and analyzed. The goal is to improve our understanding of how to excavate these often horrific crime scenes without destroying evidence for potential criminal proceedings. Mickelberg says, I started off as a traditional archaeologist. There was a lot of science involved in this type of research, including forensics. As an archaeologist, you want to know how someone was buried. As a forensic scientist, you investigate what actions by a potential murderer could have resulted in the corpse looking a certain way. I thought that was very interesting, so I started specializing in forensic archaeology. That's how I ended up in forensic taphonomy, the study of body decomposition. I mainly focus on modern mass graves, specifically in conflict areas. At the moment, you mm. can find mass graves in Ukraine, for example. We know these graves are very difficult to excavate because bodies move a bit while they decompose, so skeletons of different people can get mixed up. You need to disassemble the bones and sort them out again for each person so you can identify everyone and hopefully give them back to the next of kin. At the same time, you have to safeguard the evidence, which can very easily be destroyed during excavations. Digging up the soil is actually already a destructive process. It could contain evidence of physical violence or even of the perpetrators. Question. Your research project consists of studying bodies buried in a so-called body farm while they decompose. Why is that important? With an experimental grave like that, we can control the initial situation. If you then keep track of exactly what happens to the bodies, for instance, how a corpse moves while it liquefies or the time insects take action, <laughs> you can then properly document the decomposition process. That knowledge can then be applied to real situations. 
In Texas, where there's another large body farm, I've now recreated a mass grave with the bodies of six donors for a pilot study. You'd think Texas would be a terrible place for a body farm. Yeah, mm-hmm. like all the heat and stuff. Unless that's part of what they're looking it's to part study. Of it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Wars happen in hot places, too. You got to study oh, everywhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, what are you looking for? Mickelberg says we pay attention to bacteria since they're a very important part of the process. Decomposition starts with the bacteria in your stomach and intestines. In the current project, we have six different people with their individual intestinal flora. Based on how this bacterial community develops, we want to create a method to deduce how long the grave has existed. This can be of great importance in the legal process. We also investigate how you can track down this kind of grave. In the past, you could only rely on witness information. Now, we're increasingly capable of finding them using multispectral drone images which see bands of the light spectrum that are invisible to the naked eye. Finally, we also make accurate 3D models of the graves so we can practice how to best excavate them without destroying the evidence with the help of VR glasses. The question is, how does one actually donate their body to a project like yours? It depends. In the Netherlands, (laughs) when you donate your body to science, you can specify on your donor form that your body is available for decomposition research. In Texas, you can't just donate your body to science in general. You need to indicate a specific research facility. Huh. So the question is, what's the typical donor? At the Texas Body Farm, the average donor is a white male. Most of the time, the donors have been sick for a while. They have consciously thought about what they want to happen to their body after they pass. It's also people who don't have any religious qualms about donating their bodies. So we have a bias. Ideally, you'd want to be able to research people of different backgrounds and ages. Does that mean that most of the death science we have has been, like, atheist trained? Yeah, or at least, you know, trained on atheists. I don't know if uh, (laughs) Mickelberg is. (laughs) And the next question is, do you get to know the people whose bodies you examine? Oh. (laughs) Yeah, no, I never have personal direct contact with the next of kin. Normally, I don't even know their names. The only thing I know is their medical background. But when they come in, you can recognize them as a person. Sometimes they're still dressed. Sometimes they have tattoos. It does leave you feeling some type of way. Recently, <laughs> which, yeah. We're not going to specify what type of way, just some type of yeah, way. Yeah, very you good understanding. You can use your imagination. <laughs> yeah. Recently, we discovered something unusual in the proteins of a donor, so we requested some extra information, and a family member wrote us a long letter. She addressed the donor by her name, told us how she grew up, what she ate as a child, what her hobbies were. I suddenly had a complete picture of who she was. It eventually became clear she'd been using an experimental drug for her cancer treatment, which led to unusual values. Mm. The process was very emotional. It confirmed she was very eager to contribute to research. So then she's asked, do you still remember the first time you examined a dead body? Yes, it was during my archaeology studies. We examined the bones in a lab, so the environment was quite impersonal. It's not the same experience as viewing a fresh corpse, which is still recognizable as an individual, and then seeing that body decompose in real time is something completely different, too. Yeah, bet. Mm. It's not necessarily sad, it's just very human. For example, you see a woman with painted nails who may have been someone's grandmother. From one moment to the next, she'll turn from that old woman into a decomposing corpse. That can be very mm. emotional. At some point, it doesn't look like a person anymore. And the interviewer asks, isn't that tough? And she says, actually, it takes away the fear of death a little bit. Hmm. When my grandfather died, I was 18 and was very sad to see his body. I didn't recognize him at all. But when my grandmother passed five years ago, I experienced it far more calmly. She looked beautiful and peaceful. And last question, will you donate your body to science? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's gross. What are you talking about? Those guys are weirdos. Come on, man. <laughs> Yeah, Mickelberg says, yes, I would like to. It does depend on how my relatives feel about it, though. My husband hasn't been a big fan of the idea. He said he'd like to be able to visit my grave. 
But recently he told Mm -hmm. me he'd be okay with it after all. Yeah, it is interesting when I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, I don't care what happens to my body. Do whatever you want. But if I start thinking about the bodies of my loved ones going through this process, I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, I'm a little more uncomfortable with that. So, yeah, it is interesting to think about. It sounds like she's the right person to be doing this job, at least. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for sure. She's definitely got like the sense of uh, beauty, I guess, or, you know, understanding of the the life cycle. Yeah, you want you want that joy. You don't want a complete sociopath doing it. That gets a little (laughs) creepy. Yeah. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles that we did not have time to get to today include This is what it looks like to be colorblind, what research says about the lead crime hypothesis, and crazy ants' strange genomes are a biological first. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.